From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Diarrhea and weight loss. These are the classic symptoms of celiac disease. But for many people, celiac disease doesn't cause any signs or symptoms. Yes, many of them have had symptoms for years before diagnosis, and we've done some research that shows they have signs, or at least signs the immune system has already been reacting to gluten, often for years, maybe even decades, before they're diagnosed with the disease. Also on the program, a recent Mayo Clinic study found that slightly more than half of all doctors in the U.S. reported signs of burnout. What can be done to counter this growing trend? And tips for women who want to make regular health checkups a part of their overall healthy living plan. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Celiac disease. It's called an autoimmune disorder. Your immune system attacks healthy cells by mistake. And it's usually triggered by consuming a protein called gluten, which is found in wheat, barley, and rye. Over time, this immune reaction produces inflammation that damages the lining of your small intestine and prevents absorption of some nutrients. Symptoms of celiac can include weight loss, bloating, and diarrhea. May is Celiac Awareness Month, a time to learn about celiac disease and how changes to diet can help to ease the symptoms. And learn we will with one of the world's experts, gastroenterologist, Dr. Joseph Murray. Dr. Murray, welcome back to the program. Always nice to have you with us. Delighted to be back. So it's an autoimmune disease, meaning for whatever reason, the body by mistake attacks its own cells. And this, in this case, cells inside the gut that produces a disease called celiac. And so tell us what this disease actually is. So, Tom, what this disease is, is a reaction of our immune system, as you said, to gluten, which is a protein in wheat, barley, and rye. When somebody with the disease eats these foods or foods containing these grains, the grain is not completely broken up in the intestine. There are parts of the proteins that are not totally broken up, and that seems then to trigger the immune response. And that sets up a battle, essentially, within the intestine that becomes self-directed, and it damages those lining cells of the intestine. And we've got these little villi, these are finger-like projections of the intestine. They're beautifully designed, if you were, or, or adapted to help us absorb our food. They become damaged and even flattened. And when that happens, you get malabsorption, where you can't absorb all your nutrients correctly, you can get diarrhea, bloating, pain, and all of these consequences of celiac disease can occur. I suspect that the people who end up being diagnosed with celiac disease wonder what it is until the diagnosis is made. Yes, many of them have had symptoms for years before diagnosis, and we've done some research that shows they have signs, or at least signs the immune system has already been reacting to gluten, often for years, maybe even decades, before they're diagnosed with the disease. So what's going on? They just don't feel good? They're losing weight? A lot of them can have symptoms like that. Sometimes it's just fatigue or just feeling crummy or belly aches. In fact, the word celiac comes from kolika, which meant belly acher in (laughs) Greek. So it comes from those kind of chronic belly grumbles. And you could have had this for many years before you're ultimately diagnosed until you really figure out what the problem is. Yes, it could be. um, We know from some surveys of patients with celiacs, they've had symptoms going on for 10, 12 years before they're diagnosed. Now, some patients have 
symptoms for a very short time, get really sick and get diagnosed quickly. And that may be more common in some young children, for example. But we'll even see that occurring in older adults where they seem to be totally fine, don't have e- never suspected a problem with bread, for example, and then suddenly get ill. It's a different day now, though, because I was going to say five years or ten years. People mm-hmm. Ten years ago, people didn't even know what gluten mm-hmm. was or celiac disease was. Mm-hmm. And now, you know... I don't know if you could say it's trendy, but it's definitely the awareness of celiac disease is definitely paying off. There's a very good awareness of celiac disease, both among the general population as well as among the medical professionals. Medical professionals now have readily performed or obtainable blood tests they can do to screen or test for the celiac disease. Um, There's also the general population have become much more aware of gluten as an issue. Now, it doesn't mean they really understand celiac disease as a disease, but they've become aware that maybe gluten is something that's a problem. That's something I've seen in my practice. Ten years ago, people never suspected gluten or wheat as a problem. Now they do. Many of them already tried a gluten-free diet before Mm. they get diagnosed. Would Would it be fair to say that there's almost a backlash, people that are going overboard on... And there are people who are avoiding gluten who don't have a diagnosis of celiac disease. We use the term PWAG or people without celiac disease avoiding gluten. PWAG? PWAG. And some of those are doing that for, uh, you know, because they feel better when they avoid gluten because they felt sick. A lot of them are doing it because they think they might lose weight, which there really is no evidence that they will. And then some people are doing it because they think it might be better for them because they've heard some rumor that gluten is bad. Is there uh, a lot of foods that contain gluten? I mean, who who eats rye other than maybe rye bread? But you said wheat, barley, and rye. Those are the ones that contain the the most gluten. So wheat, of course, is the dominant one. So you think of your breads, pastas, um, your couscous. There's lots of things that contain um, cake, cookies, a lot of good stuff or good baked stuff. The good stuff, Dr. Shives. (laughs) Really contain wheat. And then you think of our cereals, our breakfast cereals. Many of those are wheat-based. A lot of the bran cereals, for example, that we think of high fiber tend to be um, wheat-based. Barley is used as an additive in a lot of things, especially as malt flavoring. Mm. So even some, um, say, rice-based cereals, for example, kind of malt flavoring that comes from barley. So they're not gluten-free. They've got, you know, a substantial amount of gluten present in them. It sounds like uh, that you could be diagnosed with this condition at virtually any age. I mean, you talked about children and you talked about people who weren't diagnosed until they were older as, as adults. How, how do you explain that? That Well, it can happen to anyone at any age. Sometimes we think people have had kind of grumbling symptoms for years or decades that were never severe enough or never raised the red flag and said, I've got celiac disease maybe or think about celiac disease as a cause. And other people get sick very fast. They go from zero to 60 in a matter of weeks. They go from not being ill at all to being quite ill. And we don't understand why in some people you get this very rapid reaction or rapid um, you know, disease onset, and other people a very slow disease onset. And then some people get a skin rash of all things. They don't get any, any gut symptoms at all. They get this extremely itchy skin rash that we call dermatitis or petiformis or DH. And that often occurs in older adults. Because I actually listened the other times that you've been a guest here. I want you to know that. I've actually listened good, to what good. you've said. Glad to hear it, Tracy. Um, is it because that you said sometimes people are just a very rapid progression and sometimes not so much? You have introduced a few times ago when you were here the term um, gluten intolerance. So you're not necessarily allergic to it, like celiac disease, but you just have an intolerance to it. What's the difference between those two? Well, yeah, we can divide out 
wheat reactions into wheat allergies, which is a more classic allergy people tend to get. They can get wheezing, they can get um, hives, mm. urticaries, they can get a true wheat allergy. Oh, so it's different. Okay. That's, that's different from celiac disease. Then you've got the celiac, it's more of a slow response. It's an immune response that takes days or weeks, not minutes or seconds, like an allergy mm-hmm. can. And then you've got people who feel better when they avoid gluten. It's not clear what that is. Some of those haven't quite got celiac disease. They've got some of the features of the genes for celiac disease, but they haven't actually developed the whole deal. And then there are some people who just feel better when they avoid gluten, and that may be because they're not eating so much fast food, they're eating slower, they're maybe eating healthier. It's not really because they're avoiding gluten, but they're they're avoiding a lot of those fast foods or not-so-good foods that are made with a lot of gluten. Yeah, no, there are a lot of people who have a bloating, diarrhea, fatigue. How do you nail down the diagnosis of celiac okay. disease? So most important is that if somebody has symptoms like that, they get tested for celiac disease with a blood test before they change their diet because there's a hidden catch here. If the person goes or the child is put gluten-free for any length of time, even a few weeks, that blood test can go negative. The blood test we rely on as our first detector for celiac disease. If they're remaining on a normal diet and they go gluten-free, if they remain on a normal diet, get tested, then usually those tests are very good. All right, well, it's good to know there's a test for it. Nail down the diagnosis and then you know. Mm -hmm. We're talking about celiac disease during Celiac Awareness Month with Dr. Joseph Murray. Dr. Murray is a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Time for a short break. When we come back, oh, myth or matter of fact, eating a gluten-free diet is a good idea even if you don't have celiac disease. Well, we're going to talk about that a little more. (laughs) You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It is Celiac Disease Awareness Month, and we are with one of the world's celiac disease experts, gastroenterologist Dr. Joseph Murray of the Mayo Clinic. So, Dr. Murray, we've talked about the symptoms. We've talked about the uh, diagnosis. What we didn't really touch on, though, was about the risk factors. Uh, Who is at risk for developing Mm -hmm. this condition? Well, this disease, which we thought of as usually a European disease up until 20 years ago, has gone global. We see plenty of celiac disease in North America, South America. You see celiac disease in Africa, in North Africa, across the Middle East, into North India. So it's a disease that's spreading. It is still largely a disease that affects Caucasians, but Caucasians in its broadest definition. Um, We see it in adults, we see it in children. It's diagnosed a little more commonly in women than in men, but that may be more to do with women being more aware perhaps of their symptoms and being more, seeing doctors more often than a lot of men ever do. Um, So there may be some factors. What triggers this, and we know the disease has become so much more common the last 30 years, it was really rare. And it wasn't just that we weren't finding it, it was not there to the same degree. It is now much more common, and we're now discovering a lot more of it because of these blood tests that have made initial detection much better. What's triggering it? There are some thoughts that may be things like um, infections in infancy, We thought that perhaps when gluten was introduced into the diet of the child was a big deal. Unfortunately, two very large trials in Europe showed that we couldn't prevent celiac disease by altering the timing of introduction. It doesn't work. Breastfeeding is very good for the baby and probably good for the mom. It does not affect the risk of celiac disease in the child, however. So we still have a big black box. What the heck is triggering this? We know gluten 
maybe the elephant in the room. You, without gluten, you can't get celiac disease. And my lab is studying gluten, as it were. Has that changed? Is how we incorporate or use that in our diet changed over the last 30 years? So it sounds like the treatment would be relatively straightforward. You just avoid gluten, but how easy is it to do yeah. that? It's, it rolls right off the tongue, just go on a gluten-free diet. However, <laughs> it is far more difficult for someone to implement because when you think about our eating lifestyle, it's not just the foods that contain gluten, but it's how we get them. Most foods are prepared outside the home, and a lot of those contain gluten, or it's very hard to control whether they contain or are contaminated with gluten or not. So practically speaking, it's a much bigger challenge. Now, the great thing is with the increased commercial interest in providing things gluten-free, there are a lot more options out there for patients. They don't feel so isolated anymore as they did before. There is still a difference between, however, someone with celiac disease who must avoid gluten. It is not an option for them. It is a requirement for their disease. And people who choose to avoid gluten for whatever reason, there's a big difference between having something imposed on you or choosing to do something. Um, so, yes, it's an advantage. I have a little bit of pushback from our patients, our celiac patients, because they say, you know, I feel like my disease has been trivialized or my requirement mm. to be gluten-free has been trivialized by people who are simply choosing to maybe even just dabble in a gluten-free diet. Which brings up myth or matter of fact. Well, that's right. Eating a gluten-free diet is a good idea even if you don't have celiac disease. Um, well, All right. The, expound on, expound <laughs> on that. Right? Well, when we think about what gluten comes from, gluten comes from wheat, for example, and Wheat is really the basis for Western civilization. It would not have occurred without wheat, essentially. It's what allowed our Western civilization to develop. And it inherently can't have been bad for us. What is good about wheat? It's a very good source of fiber, for example, and wheat-based cereals are an important component of the diet that is fortified with micronutrients. And, of course, whole grains, of which wheat is one of the major ones in our diet, um, is probably important for things like heart health, for example, and maybe even have an impact on, on say, colon cancer risk. So taking something as major component of our diet and throwing it out of our diet, what are we left with? We're often left with a low-fiber um, you know, diet that perhaps is not so healthy for someone who doesn't need to avoid it. So at bottom line, unless you have celiac disease, there is no good reason from a health standpoint to avoid gluten. There really isn't good evidence to support that. Now, I have to recognize uh, patient's experience. I was just going to say, <laughs> I, I, I would disagree with yeah, that as a patient. Yeah, there, I have, you know, <laughs> even though anecdote is not science, there is lots of anecdote that suggests that people who, some people who avoid gluten feel better. The question is, Do you is think that that's because real? I don't know that it's the gluten. <laughs> it could well be the starches. It could be just that you're eating too much food too fast. That's not good for our digestion. And most people can attest to having their, if they have a pizza lunch or a giant sandwich for lunch, that they feel somnolent and not very productive afterwards. It might be due to the amount of starch that they've eaten, not because there was gluten present. So why has it become so popular for food manufacturers to put gluten-free on their label? <laughs> There's money in it. Um, it's a commercial success. If you put gluten-free on it, and some manufacturers have jacked up their prices substantially, and they say, here's an opportunity for a bigger margin in a industry that has a very tiny margin. The food industry has tiny margins. They make up for it by high volume, but when you put a gluten-free label on, 
you can jack up the prices, make a lot more money. Is there point. a genetic link to yes, celiac disease? It runs in families, okay. and we see very high concordance, as it were, in, in identical twins. It's very common to find it in family members, and I usually recommend that when I diagnose a member of a family that the other family members be tested quickly, especially if they're household members, because gluten consumption will go down in that house when one is affected, and that can affect the accuracy of the tests in the other family members. You know, in the state of medicine today, instead of cutting out gluten, people are more likely to say, isn't there a pill I can take so I can have my gluten and a pill? We would is like there anything like that on the, on the horizon? On the horizon, there are several developmental efforts to come up with adjunctive therapy, things that can be added to a gluten-free diet to make it more effective, or things that might even be an alternative. So the the possibility of maybe taming the immune system so it doesn't react to gluten, I think is a real possibility. And there are several drugs and, and approaches in clinical trials or at least in development stages. But right now, nothing available, no medication nope. available that can allow you to have a, a diet full of gluten if you have celiac disease. No, there isn't. There are some quote, supplements available, <laughs> those do not work for celiac disease. They've never been tested to show they work or they're safe for people with celiac disease. I'm not sure what they're good for, but I tell my patients <laughs> to avoid them. Making money for the manufacturer, that's what they're good for. So we know that if you do have celiac disease, um, the, your usual symptoms are uh, bloating, belly pain, diarrhea, fatigue, etc. There's a blood test to actually confirm the diagnosis, mm-hmm. and then you have to avoid gluten. What are some of the foods that are highest in gluten that people for sure with celiac disease need to avoid? Well, of course, bread is probably the single biggest <clears throat> one. Pastas. Pasta. Pasta would be another. <laughs> you think of pizza and much-loved things like cookies and cakes. You know, there's lots of things, unfortunately, they're added. A lot of the sauces and stews may have wheat added, wheat flour added to it as a thickener, for example. And the cauliflower crust pizza is good, but it's not that good. It's not good enough. No. <laughs> there are some gluten-free pizzas that are not bad. The other thing I tell my patients when they're first diagnosed, don't try to eat the gluten-free breads or the gluten-free pizzas It'll for a month. Sad. Yeah, make you sad. It's best to try and forget the taste. So when you do then eat them, you appreciate the texture or the convenience of eating that type of food. But I do tell my patients, now, it's not enough just to be gluten-free. You have to be gluten-free and healthy. Because now we're getting concerned about, well, what happens with our celiac patients when they go gluten-free? They start gaining weight like the rest of the population. They start catching up with the other health risk factors. So now I tell my patients, it's not enough to be gluten-free. Well, you got to be gluten-free and you got to eat healthy gluten-free. All right, Dr. Murray, thanks so much for bringing us up to date on celiac disease treatment and diagnosis during Celiac Awareness Month. Dr. Joseph Murray is a gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the growing problem of physician burnout, and we'll talk about why regular checkups are so important to women's health in preparation for National Women's Health Week. Uh, it's probably not a National Men's Health Week, is there? <laughs> the other 51 weeks, Tom. Yeah, well, the women are more important, of course. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Let's talk about bed bugs. 
They're creepy and they're crawly, and according to a recent study published in the Journal of Medical Entomology, they have particular tastes when it comes to color. We have an adult in the middle. Researchers say bed bugs are drawn to darker colors. Mayo Clinic parasitologist Dr. Bobby Pritt adds, "It's not a huge surprise that we know insects and bed bugs are insects. Uh, we know other insects have color preferences." Researchers use small colored tents in petri dishes to test the bed bugs' preferences. So they like reds and they like blacks, and I think the black would be a shadowy, safe place to hide. The red, I think, we could hypothesize that the color of the bed bugs themselves is red, and therefore they might be attracted to where they think their mates are. When given the chance, they made a beeline for black and red. White, yellow, and greens were the less popular pest picks. So it's probably an evolutionary coping mechanism to hide from things. Bedbug color preference is interesting, says Dr. Pritt, and it may be helpful for further research and perhaps for companies looking to get rid of those pesky bugs. And now let's talk about expanding waistlines. They're sometimes considered the price of getting older. For women, this can be especially true after menopause. Pause when the body fat tends to shift to the abdomen. Yet an increase in belly fat does more than make it hard to zip up your jeans. Research shows that belly fat also carries serious health risks. The good news: the threats posed by belly fat can be reduced. Now, the trouble with belly fat is that it's not limited to the extra layer of padding located just below the skin, called subcutaneous fat. It also includes visceral fat, which lies deep inside. Inside your abdomen, surrounding your internal organs, although subcutaneous fat poses cosmetic concerns, visceral fat is linked with far more dangerous health problems, including heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol, and breathing problems. Now, here's how to battle belly fat to reduce your risk of those issues: eat a healthy diet. Replace sugary beverages with water, and include physical activity in your daily routine. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. A recent Mayo Clinic study showed that in 2011, 45 percent of doctors reported that they felt burned out.、Mm. Now, just three years later, in 2014, that number had risen to 54 percent. What's behind these dramatic numbers, and what do they mean for the quality of our healthcare? Here to talk about physician burnout is Dr. Tate Shanafelt. Dr. Shanafelt is a hematologist at Mayo Clinic and is author of the study on physician burnout. Welcome to the program, Dr. Shanafelt. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me today. Well, we've heard all about you, and particularly in the medical community, physicians have、uh, heard about your work and are talking about it. How did you ever get interested in this topic? Because by specialty, you're you're a blood specialist. You treat patients with Blood diseases. Right. Well, it was partly by chance.、Uh, my interest in the topic began when I was a resident、uh, a little over、uh, 16 years ago, and when I was a senior resident at the University of Washington, I remember 
observing my interns having reactions when I would call them with the next patient admission and would seem that their comments were incongruent with their commitment, dedication uh, that, uh, <laughs> to, to their patients. A little girl eye-rolling <laughs> little, going on. A little of that cynicism. Another one. <laughs> That's right. And uh, I had a wonderful mentor at the time, and we were uh, doing a number of research projects, and I uh, relayed to him I wanted to study the experience of uh, the residency training process, and he asked a number of probing questions. And uh, after hearing my answers, he said, I think you're, what you're observing is burnout, and uh, I, I'm not an expert in this topic, but let's put together a team to study it. And that led to our first study uh, about 16 years ago now that really became a lightning rod paper because it was one of the early looks at potential repercussions for quality of care and how the impact of burnout in physicians uh, potentially impacted patients. So, Dr. Schoenfeld, you, you've studied this for a while. Uh, what are the most common symptoms? What are you seeing among the medical profession that, that concerns you or should concern the individual? I think what individuals often notice is, uh, first, a feeling of exhaustion, uh, feeling like they no longer are able to uh, give to their work what it needs or requires. Uh, a second common symptom is cynicism and uh, starting to feel that you may no longer really be concerned about the outcomes of what happens to some of your patients, which is obviously a very concerning uh, characteristic for anybody in medicine or uh, the healthcare-related fields. And also, often, uh, individuals experiencing burnout begin to feel that they're no longer making a difference and that all of their work really is not doesn't matter or uh, doesn't have a purpose. And when those symptoms come, uh, everybody feels those uh, or experiences those symptoms to some frequency and severity. But when they come too often or to too severe an extent, they can begin to undermine your effectiveness in your work. And do you have any idea why this is happening? I think there are a number of factors. In medicine, we often simplify uh, the drivers to five core dimensions, which are excessive workload, inefficiency in the practice environment, loss of flexibility or control over practice, uh, difficulty with work-life integration, and then loss of meaning in work. And uh, there have been a number of substantive changes in healthcare delivery that affect each of those five dimensions and I think are why we're seeing this uh, upward trend in uh, physicians. So what are the biggest changes that you see, have seen, experienced in healthcare delivery that, that would lead to these symptoms? I think some of the changes we've seen uh, are as reimbursements have declined, many medical centers have responded simply by increasing productivity expectations, and so that, in a sense, their answer is increased throughput. And so physicians are trying to see more patients in less time, and, and that can have a number of consequences, one of which is uh, loss of that interpersonal connection with patients, which is really one of the most meaningful things for many physicians. I think uh, the introduction of uh, the electronic medical record has both positive and negative qualities. Uh, certainly, it can be more efficient to look up notes and have a sense of what other providers uh, are recommending. But uh, specific other qualities, such as com uh, physician uh, order entry, has been shown to be very inefficient uh, and also uh, diverts a great deal of physicians' time away from the work that they should be doing. Those are, are two of the changes. I think also there's been a great deal of loss of autonomy, flexibility, control in physicians' practice. Some studies now say that up to 
percent of physicians are working in an employed model so that they're now functioning more as an employee and that often results in a great deal of loss of flexibility and control that can also contribute to this challenge. Are there some specialties that you found in your study that experience burnout more than others? In the 2011 study, uh, a number of the specialties at greatest risk were specialties at the front line of access to care. So family medicine, general internal medicine, emergency medicine. So many of our primary care disciplines and sort of the front door to health care, if you will. Those studies remained at risk in the 2014 follow-up study, but a number of other specialties had uh, had large increases. Mm -hmm. Some of the notable uh, other specialties were uh, urology, dermatology, some specialties that traditionally have not been felt to be at high risk had large increases. So I I think there are no specialties that are immune, Mm -hmm. and in fact, even the specialties with the lowest rates of burnout, if you will, are up to around 30%. Those at the higher end of the spectrum are in the 60 to 70% of the physicians in that specialty experiencing burnout in this national sample. Does this lead uh, a fair number of physicians to retire sooner than they had expected? It's a great question. We certainly see that burnout uh, causes physicians to reduce their clinical work hours. And, in fact, we uh, just had another publication about two weeks ago in the Mayo Clinical Proceedings looking at a longitudinal study where we measured burnout and uh, correlated those findings with their actual payroll records. And we find that uh, physicians' experience burnout will cut their clinical workload uh, over the next two years. The retirement question is a bit more challenging. Certainly burnout may contribute to early retirement for some physicians, but there are so many other variables, your personal health, the health of your uh, parents, your partner, uh, financial considerations, that the retirement decision uh, is far more complex. It's been harder to find that link with burnout. And, and fortunately, this is in general a gradual process. So a physician will cut back and maybe retire earlier because of the burnout, but he doesn't walk in one day. What's the, uh, the Johnny Paycheck song, Take This Job and Shove It? <laughs> don't act <laughs> like you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, physicians don't do that, right? I mean, it's a, it's a gradual sort of thing. And, and it sounds like it's truly related to the changes in practice over the past decade or two. I think the changes in practice are the main driver, and I think one of the great mistakes that has occurred over the last decade is that the response at many uh, medical centers is to blame the individual and to say that the solution is for Dr. Shives to uh, eat more granola, exercise more, and get more sleep, uh, all of which are good things in their own right, but really are not the heart of this problem. Uh, And so if we were going to make true inroads, we need to address the system issues, uh, the drivers that are really in the practice environment that are contributing to this. Uh, to, to make a big impact. And, of well, course, pa- patients should care because it affects your quality of care when you're in there. That's exactly right. A number of studies uh, ha- have demonstrated links to medical errors uh, as well as quality of care, uh, patients' uh, satisfaction with their medical care. So there are important repercussions for patients. And, obviously, when your primary care provider 
cuts their work hours that also influences access to care for you. Dr. Tate Shen Powell, he is a hematology blood specialist and he's also an expert on physician burnout. Thanks, Dr. Shen Powell. Thank you. We'll take a short break. When we come back, tips for women who want to make regular health checkups part of their overall healthy living plan. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has designated the week of May 8th through the 14th as National Women's Health Week. Did you know that? I did not know that. Well, I didn't either, but I'm glad we do now. It's a national effort to raise awareness about steps that women can take to improve their health. One day in Women's Health Week, that's Monday, May 9th, is set aside as Women's Health Checkup Day. It's a reminder that getting regular checkups can improve a woman's health overall. Here to talk about why women should consider getting a health checkup and what they should expect from it is Dr. Summer Allen. Dr. Allen is a family medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Allen. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. And like the rest of us, you were not quite aware that there's a Women's Health Checkup Day. (laughs) You didn't have to make her say that, did you? (laughs) That's all right. Neither of us. Knew either. <laughs> I was not aware. Why is it important to call attention to this that women make sure they're getting taken care of themselves? I think, you know, in general, for women, it's just it's important that they are taking the steps necessary for themselves to keep themselves healthy. You know, in those recommendations, some of the biggest things that many of us forget is healthy eating habits, exercising regularly, getting adequate sleep are some of the best things that they can do in addition to some of the preventative screening or uh, some lab tests that we would do to check for some early potential heart disease or other factors. Uh, there's some been some controversy recently about the importance uh, of the general exam, a periodic health exam, and whether or not you really ought to have one. What's your feeling about that, and is there any difference when it comes to, to men versus women? Such a great question. I was hoping you'd ask me, otherwise I was going to say something. It's a great question. uh, The best way I correlate a lot of times for my patients, too, is I tell them is coming in to see me on a annual or yearly basis, uh, to your point, and just to say, yep, I'm doing well, Dr. Allen, or I'm doing well, Summer, and if there's other things going on, it's not always a marker of health or making you healthy. What's making you healthy is, again, back to my point of healthy eating, exercising regularly, proper sleep and taking care of yourself. Now, there are some preventative screenings, regular screenings, and that's where we try to correlate some of these health checkups exams. For example, with women, we would recommend from a cervical cancer screening in their um, 20s, so from age 21 to 29, that they get a pap smear uh, for cervical cancer screening every three years. Now, when they reach their 30s and and older, the screening can be done about every three to five years, again, depending on risk factors is one example. Again, differences um, between women and men, though, when it comes to this annual health exam or checkup, really it's the same recommendation, again, that you be following the preventative screening, but you don't necessarily need to be seen on an annual basis if you're doing well. It's okay with you if women come in periodically to see you? You don't ever turn to your nurse after they leave and say, I can't believe she came in here. There's nothing wrong with her. (laughs) 
<laughs> Great question. So, no, what it more is is that I, I feel bad because patients often feel when we talk about an annual exam or health exam, they will hold on to everything for a year. Mm-hmm. And then they come in a year and they've they got like their laundry the list. Because they feel like that was the only time that they could bring up their concerns or their questions. So I tell them, don't wait a year. Now, I, I reference their resources, like our segment we're doing here, our website, and other things to research some of the questions they may have. And if they don't find the answers, I encourage them to use portal messaging or utilize my care team and our staff to help answer those questions and not not to wait a year to come in or uh, even longer in some cases. Now, there are for some people, though, that may have a chronic disease or some other health condition that they require more regular screening, and we usually have talked about that. I can see where the blood work is something that people, you know, because for women my age, you know, in the mid-40s, you think, all right, I'm going and getting a mammogram. I'm, you know... I suppose I should be starting to think about bone health. I don't know. Maybe not yet. Forget about that. But when it comes to blood work, that's something that should be done regularly. Is that something that should be every year? Or how often should you have your numbers checked for your cholesterol, for instance? Great question. So the hard part that's confusing for so many patients and even providers is a lot of times it depends on whose guidelines you're referencing mm-hmm. or where you're looking. So a lot of times what I try to do is I try to summarize um, the different guidelines, and most of them will have a kind of an average or a reference range that I can have that discussion with my patients, or a lot of times we'll have resources, and even uh, Mayo Clinic has developed a kind of preventative screening guideline that I've, prevent, or that I've printed for patients to give them a reference. So when it comes to like their cholesterol screening, most of us would say every three to five years. Now, if your levels are higher or we've got you on a medication or we're following or you have different risk factors, it may be more often. But for cholesterol screening, that would be how often. Diabetes screening, some factors we look at is if you're overweight or obese. If you have a strong family history of type 2 diabetes, for example, we may do glucose screening or some lab tests on um, a more regular basis. But otherwise, that one, again, would be about every three to five years. So glucose being blood sugar. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say that uh, a woman is, let's say she's 50 years old. She's uh, had uh, previously, she's gone in for her pap smear and maybe her mammogram if she had a family history. What are the things that she for sure ought to expect to get in terms of tests at age 50 if she comes in to see you? So at age 50, she would anticipate if she hasn't had that cholesterol test done, that she would get a cholesterol or lipid panel test that will check cholesterol, triglycerides, the HDL, or many would reference good cholesterol, or LDL, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol. She may get that uh, glucose or blood sugar check for diabetes. Uh, her cervical cancer screening would be the other. Now, the ones that, that I feel like sometimes we neglect is to talk to people about alcohol use, smoking, and number one for me often is mental health. The stress that many people are under and how they're handling their day-to-day life goes unnoticed, and we don't we kind of talk about numbers or we talk about just screening tests, but we don't talk about people's overall well-being and mental health, so I make sure that we screen or talk about that. And mammogram at age 50, right? Great questions. Yeah, mammograms, those guidelines, they, they encourage the discussion to start at age 40. And if women have risk factors, other things, they, they would start that screening at 40. Otherwise, again, depending on what guidelines you look at, some will say to start at 45, some would say at 50, and it's either every year or every two years. But most of us by age 40 are having the discussion with our patients on what their, their preference is based on their beliefs. How about a quick little commentary here? As you are the person who helps in family medicine, uh, I always think that when it's National Women's Checkup Day, it's because we need to remind women, you know what, you need to take care of yourself. So who is it that needs to hear that reminder more often, take care of yourself? Is it women 
or is it men? You know, go in and get taken care of. Which sex has a harder time taking care of their health? Many of the the men in my practice or uh, fathers, husbands, significant others, many of them will come in at the at the urgence of their significant other. It's often those caregivers, the moms, sisters, wives who take care of everyone else, the children, their husband, and they do neglect themselves. That's what I was thinking. That's what I hear that it they they'll get their husband there, but then they don't make themselves go to the doctor. Well, yeah, the fact that men are as healthy as they are, a lot of the credit goes to the women in their lives. I admit that. See how smart he is. What a smart guy. Is there anything else that you want women to know? As as fancy as we get with our tests and medications and things, bottom line, when you talk to even specialists and and many of us, back to is if we can be more active in our lifestyles and try to eat a, a healthy diet, again, it doesn't ever mean you can't have dessert again or can't have that piece of bread, but again, overall trying to be healthy with your um, eating habits, lifestyle, and again, that trying to get proper sleep. Those are the things that are going to make the biggest difference for you. And don't smoke. Yes, don't, don't that smoke. One. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> We've been talking about why women should get into the habit of having regular medical checkups with Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist, Dr. Summer Allen. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Allen. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.